Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for your grace and your love, and thank you for showing us what the gospel is all about and who it is rooted in. It is your Son, the same person who you sent out of heaven in his humiliation to die on a cross so that we may have even an evening like this one But far beyond that, Father, lies our great hope that we get to spend eternity with you as a result of his good work, his good labor, and your marvelous plan for salvation. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title is The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works. Turn your Bibles, John 8.24. I'm just going to warn you, this evening's message is packed full of content. And we are drawing very heavily upon the good work over the last year even. So I was thinking before I came out, as I was reviewing my notes before class, that this might be a do-over for all of you. Um, You can decide after class, um, but there's an awful lot here. That's all I can tell you, and I can only do the best I can as a teacher for you. But uh, this may be a do-over. John 8, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's pretty straightforward talk. And he doesn't say there necessarily, hey, listen, I came to save you from your, or if I didn't come here to save you from hell, I came here so that you wouldn't die in your sins. That's going to be the division in Scripture that the Spirit's going to have you clinging to now, moving forward, because That's the division that I found after all the studying in my own walk. The great division, even within Christianity, is regarding the gospel and what is the fundamental premise of the gospel. In other words, if you were to ask a a person right now, say in Massachusetts, do you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior? They'd probably say yes. I hope. Well, what did he save you from? I would argue a good portion, if not the majority, would say hell. He saved me from hell. Is hell the issue? No. Hell is not the issue. Sin is the issue. Just like he said right here. He said, if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The issue with the gospel is not being saved from hell. You were not born in hell. You were born in sin. The issue is sin, not hell. But I'll I'll be willing to bet you, I'd be willing to bet you, if you ask the average Christian, what were you saved from? Going to hell. Wrong, wrong, wrong. So I'm not, just so you know, I'm not going to approach this topic the way Satan wants me to. He would love for me to get all tangled up in false doctrines, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to allude to certain things just like I just did, but that's going to be it. I'm not going to spend our time, our precious time, on trying to debunk something that is garbage. I'm going to give you the truth. God the Holy Spirit will make it known to you. So I'm not going to approach this topic the way Satan wants me to. Oh, trust me, he wants me to go down that rat hole with him. Satan wants me to try to contend with his unholy presuppositions and confusion, but I'm not going to take the bait. And I don't want any of you to do that either. I'm going to be presenting you with truth, and that's it, with Jesus, to be concise. 
The highlight of our last few lessons has really been the crux of this past year even. And you just heard me sort of rail about it up here on the board regarding the gospel. The good news about God's plan to save us from sin. The issue is not hell. The issue is sin. Which is why when we present the gospel, we have to present it from that perspective. My friend, you have a problem. You were born in sin. So the good news, the gospel is the good news about God's plan to save us from sin. We are not saved from hell, strictly speaking, as that is not the key problem statement. We are not born in hell. Where does it say that in Scripture? Nowhere. So how can you be saved from something you're not in? So we're not saved from hell. We were not born in hell. We are born in sin. So you see, sin is the problem. If we don't accept God's grace, we will die in our sins. I just read that to you in John 8, 24. Again, the gospel is the good news about God's plan to save us from sin. We are not, quote, saved from hell, strictly speaking, as that is not the key problem statement. We are not born in hell. We are born in sin. If we do not accept God's grace, we will die in our sins. In a place called hell, which is where we'd go, but that's not the primary issue. Again, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Satan wants us to present a gospel that saves people from hell. Oh, he loves that gospel. Loves it. Why? Because it doesn't actually bring up the real issue about salvation. The real issue with salvation is that you were born in sin. The real issue is not you're going to hell if you don't believe this stuff. That's not the issue at all. That's a misdirection. And if I can scare these people into believing it's about hell and hell and hell, and I'll get a bunch of hack preachers and wannabe shepherds, and I'll just have them teaching fire and brimstone, hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. Oh, I believe. Now you're saved from hell. They don't ever talk about the sin issue. At least not properly. At least not wholly. At least not to the point where a contrite heart can make a decision about repentance. Satan wants us to present a gospel that saves people from hell, but not from the domain of sin. Do you see the difference? He loves the idea of us saying, oh, if you believe this about Jesus, then you're saved from hell. But he doesn't like it when we tell someone they're a sinner, that their problem was that they were born in sin, and they need a Savior. And that Savior, through the holy work of God, is able to move a person from the dominion of sin, which you were born in, to the dominion of righteousness, which is Christ's dominion. That's what it means to be saved. What's the other word for saved in the Bible? Delivered. It's like a delivery. You were delivered from one domain to the next. That's why it's perfectly okay that Jesus is Savior. And it's the same guy that's Lord and Savior. Because if you know anything about soteriology, if you know anything about what it really means to be saved, you realize that it means to be delivered from the dominion that you were born in to something much greater, infinitely greater. And if you believe that part of salvation, the primary premise, then you have to concede, like Paul said in uh, Romans uh, 6, You're either a servant of unrighteousness or righteousness. You're always a servant. You're always a slave of one or the other, whether you like it or not. So if you believe in the deliverance, the salvation that God offers from the dominion that you were born in to the dominion of righteousness for all of eternity, then you have to understand who's the head of that dominion. 
Jesus Christ, which is why we call him, guess what? You ready? Lord. Lord. So you see, Savior and Lord, Lord and Savior, they're inseparable in the Bible. Inseparable. Not a choice after the fact. It's not a choice. You don't get to choose if Jesus Christ is your Lord after you've been saved, because if you've been saved, He is Lord. That's why He says, count the cost, my friends. Make sure you understand the offer, because the offer is that I'm going to move you from here to here, and when I do that thing, I'm going to be not just your Savior, but your Lord. You see, a perverted gospel, a gospel that Satan wants us to teach, doesn't include all that. If you don't believe this, you're going to hell. Well, I guess I'm believing then. I remember when I used to teach prep school, the very first question I would ever ask any new student, always the same. Are you saved? Yep. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Why? I don't want to go to hell. Wrong, 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 wrong. That is wrong motivation, my friend. You don't understand the problem statement yet. You just understand if, if you don't believe in Jesus, as the Bible says, you're going to hell. But you haven't actually contemplated that depravity. Now, that's a funny conversation to have with a four-year-old, isn't it? Which is why I've been saying some of the things I've been saying about prep school from the pulpit, an age-appropriate understanding. So anyway, Satan wants us to present a gospel that saves people from hell, but not from the dominion of sin. A false gospel is one that leaves the transfer from the domain of sin to the domain of righteousness as an optional, volitional decision that can be decided later on. You know, there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between the reality that someone remains in sin and might choose for the Lord and a person who's actually truly saved, who is in the dominion of righteousness and can choose against him from time to time. Do you see the difference? This is the true gospel. This is the false one. And that, my friends, is an abomination of God's good work at salvation for the true believer. I think it was Spurgeon who said that. He said, a person who still lives in sin has never been saved. You get it? They've actually never been saved. Because what did they get saved from? Because save, saved means to be delivered to the dominion of righteousness. So if you're still living in sin, like, you know, read First John, if you're still living in sin then you actually haven't been saved. It doesn't matter if you say you've been saved or every so often you, you know, choose some morality that looks like the Lord's and say, well, you know, yeah, he's my Lord. You were never saved. Not in the sense of getting out of hell. Like literally, you were never saved. You were never delivered from the dominion of sin because apparently you still live in it. Apparently, you still abide in it. Apparently... You bear no fruit whatsoever because you don't have a new creature that can only abide in righteousness. So you see how the perversion works. Let's investigate this further. Go to John 1.17. I'm just getting off the first page and I'm almost 20 minutes. <laughs> you see, this is a huge topic probably second to the 117-part series we just got off of. Grace and works. For whatever reason in this area and for whatever reason in a lot of our backgrounds, grace and works have gotten mangled. People are actually afraid to use the word grace in the same sentence with works. Oh, no, that's works. That's, the, that's legalism. What? <laughs> what are we talking about here? Seriously, what are, you, what are you afraid of? You, you're actually afraid of good works? What, what is it that you're afraid of? You're afraid of grace? Oh, I get it now. You don't understand grace. You say you say grace. You say you understand grace, but you actually don't. 
You want some hacked version of grace that allows you to stay over here, but proclaim over here, as opposed to the other way around. You never really wanted to be saved, did you? You only wanted to be saved from hell. You really didn't want to be saved. That's what we're dealing with in this world, my friends. That's exactly what we're dealing with in this world. A bunch of hacks. I don't mean to be harsh. I'm just saying that's what we're dealing with. People have willingly, knowingly hacked off grace. Because the fullness of grace, which is Jesus Christ himself, as we're going to see in John 1, the fullness of grace means that you've actually been saved. Which means to be delivered from the dominion of sin, which you were born in, to the dominion of righteousness as a new creature. And under that dominion, Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't like that part. Then you don't want all of God's grace because that's the offer. So says Scripture. See, people don't like that because that, that means that they really are submissive. They don't have control anymore. They don't like that. The flesh hates that idea. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Up here on the board, <clears throat> this is from our previous lessons, this whole idea of misdirection. Satan has done a masterful job of sowing misdirection, even from pulpits, resulting in folks asking the wrong questions. The questions we ought to be asking, or the question we ought to be asking, folks, is what do you believe? Not just do you believe. What do you believe? Of course I believe. Yeah, Jesus Christ, he saved me from hell. Really? That's what you believe? Yep. And I ain't going to hell. That place sounds nasty. Are you still living in sin? What, what does that mean? What do you mean, am I still living in sin? Do I sin? Yeah. Are you still living in it? Have you been delivered from sin? Have you actually been, quote, saved from sin? What do you mean? See, you haven't asked the right question of yourself even. You think salvation is a trip to heaven. Salvation is from sin. What do you need salvation for if there's nothing to be saved from? If salvation was just a trip to heaven, in other words, I believe that most people that peddle the gospel now peddle a, a little gift, a little goodies bag. Please, please, please accept this goodies bag from Jesus Christ. And it says grace on the front. Please, please, please accept the free gift of salvation so you don't go to hell, so we can all spend time together with Grandma up in heaven, you know. Please take this goodies bag. No, nothing to do at all with actual sin. Just a goodies bag. That's not grace. That's an abomination of grace. And that's what, that's what Satan does. Satan knows that that kind of a thing appeals to the natural man. Where's the natural man com most comfortable? In this domain or this one? This one he gets to maintain some control. This one he has to submit. Satan has done a masterful job of sowing misdirection, and he appeals to the human flesh, even when it comes to grace. Even from pulpits, resulting in folks asking the wrong questions. The questions we ought to be asking is, what do you believe, not do you believe? The focus of contemporary Christianity is wrong. <clears throat> this is a perfect segue from our lessons on believing to grace and works because the latter is a function of the prior and vice versa. In other words, what do you believe? Well, take it one step further. What do you believe about God's grace? Do you believe it was sufficient or insufficient? Do you think it stopped halfway between this and this domain? 
Do you think he said, I'll, 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 I'll save you from sin, but somehow I'm going to put you over here in, in my own son's dominion, but yet you don't have to have him as Lord? Is this, is this the kind of grace we're, we're thinking is true? The passages that speak to grace and works are only difficult because man has made them difficult. Once you understand the fundamental premise that we began this evening's message with, you'll never struggle with any of this again, I promise. You won't struggle with it anymore. You're going to be like, that's it? Yeah, that's it. It's that simple. Again, that basic premise up here on the board is really the first sentence. The gospel is the good news about God's plan to save us from sin. We are not saved from hell, so to speak, strictly speaking, as that is not the key problem statement. We are not born in hell. We are born in sin. That's our problem. So unless a gospel deals with that, unless we understand grace as dealing with all of that, then we haven't understood it all yet. We might have picked and chooses, you know, and, and filled a goodies bag and said, oh, I like this one way better. Because it gives my flesh room still to dominate, even in my own theology. If we don't accept God's grace, we will die in our sins. John 8, 24. And that's the thing that's been scaring me the most, ever since we started this topic even. Really, truth be told, my biggest fear all along has been there are lots of people out there, some possibly in my own congregation, they're not even saved and think they're saved. That bothers me a lot. The real question we ought to be asking people, we are trying to evangelize, might say be something like this. If, if you believe that Jesus is Savior, what is it exactly? What, what has He saved you from? That should be the question we ask people. Do you believe Jesus is Savior? Yeah, well, what, do you th what is it that you believe He saved you from? If, look, if a person cannot answer that, or they answer with, from hell, there's a good chance they haven't yet understood, or maybe they've possibly rejected, the issue regarding their being born in sin. In other words, if Jesus Christ is just a guy who's, you know, if you believe in him, you don't have to go to hell, but you've never broached the sin issue, which is the real issue, you probably have a problem. Maybe you have broached the sin issue and you say, but I'll just be good enough. Or maybe I just want a little bit of, maybe, you know what, I think I'm, I'm pretty good on my own, so just give me part of his grace. Just, just give me enough you know, to fill in the gaps, like I'm, I'm like 50% good, 51 to make sure so Peter lets me through the gates, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I'm 51% good, I need 49% from Jesus, can I get that? Dude, this isn't the stock market, you're not building a portfolio. This isn't a bet that you hedge on Wall Street. This is as serious, as solemn, and unfortunately as somber as anything we could ever contemplate in our lives could ever be. Period. Here's the truth. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 22. You see, Satan does not want us preaching this. He does not want you saying things like this. He hates me. For real. Are you kidding me? He despises me right now. Says, wait a minute, you're letting, the, you're letting the secret out of the bag. You bet. You bet I am. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says what? For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Ah. 
That's the essence of the gospel, my friends. That's the problem statement and the solution in one line of Scripture. Can you imagine that? In other words, you were born in sin, but in Christ you are saved. You see? It's not about, <laughs> it's not about heaven and hell. It's about being dead and then being made alive. Being born spiritually dead. Theologically, we say, you know, separate from God. Spiritually dead. In the dominion of sin itself. And then in Christ, being delivered from that to righteousness. That's the issue, my friends. That's the concept of the gospel. But Satan does not want us to have that conversation. Why? Because it implies that we have to have that difficult conversation with a person we're trying to evangelize. You're a sinner. Do you understand what that means? That you were born, that the Bible says that you were born in sin. Not me. The Bible. The God of the universe inspired this Bible that says you were born in sin. The entire human race has fallen. Do you understand that? That's not the conversation most people have, though, when they bring up the gospel. It's usually, hey, believe this stuff. You don't want to go to hell. Don't you want to go to heaven? Ask yourselves this question. If a person doesn't understand the basic premise of, say, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, why even baptize them? Seriously, why even baptize them? Baptism, water baptism symbolizes something. If water baptism is just a ritual that saves a person from hell, then that person doesn't understand salvation yet. Salvation is from sin. When you're, when you're saved, you are, we call it the baptism of the Spirit. You're baptized, you're unified by the Spirit Himself into the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what that means? You might want to before you get baptized. Certainly a, a, a human being this big doesn't understand that at all. I would argue human beings this big don't understand that at all. Salvation is from Sin, not from hell. And here's the thing. This is the, this is the killer of it all. There's so much beautiful, efficacious grace in that statement that it's amazing that anyone would ever reject any part of it. Think of the work that God is willing to do, that He has done through His Son, to deliver you from that which you were born in to eternal life. That He's willing to give you Jesus Christ's own perfect righteousness to your account to save you from spiritual death and deliver you from sin. How beautiful is that? Why would we want to hack out any part of that? Ah, that's what the flesh likes, though. And that's what Satan wants. Do you see? <clears throat> so this is the killer. You know, salvation is from sin, and there's just so much grace and beauty in that one thing. Yet, people reject it. People reject His grace. Even so-called professing Christians do it. They reject it. They say, you know, I want some of God's grace, you know, like deliverance from hell. I like that part. But not all of it. I don't want a loss of the dominion of sin. My wretched heart likes, still likes, the dominion of sin. 
still prefers the dominion of sin. That's very different than a new creature who is repulsed by sin. Give me heaven, let me stay here, and once in a while I'll choose for righteousness. That's a very different gospel than change me, Lord, and once in a while I'm going to fail. Do you see the difference there? This is the average gospel. This is the true gospel. So that's the problem. People don't want all of grace. They just want some of it. We'll get, to back, we'll get back to that line of thinking a little bit later. For now, let's divert our attention to the author and perfecter of our faith, the one the Bible describes as the embodiment of grace and truth, the very embodiment of, of these things. So I guess if we're going to study out grace and works, I mean, who did greater works than Jesus Christ? No one. Who was more grace-oriented than Jesus Christ? No one. Who doesn't have a recorded word out of his own mouth? The Greek word charis. Jesus. What? The author and perfecter of faith, the faith that we receive by grace through faith, this faith that we receive as a free gift, the author and perfecter of that, at least as the Bible records it, doesn't have a recorded word, doesn't have him actually saying the word grace in the Bible? Yep. I guess we just throw him out then, huh? Because he obviously didn't understand grace, otherwise he would have been talking about it all the time. Oh, boy. Again, interestingly, the recorded statements from Jesus Christ Never use the Greek word for grace, charis, up here on the board. Just an interesting little tidbit, but the Spirit's going to blow this right out of the water. Any, anyone clinging to this, usually it's dispensationalist. I hope most of you have been delivered from that garbage. I still believe in dispensations, by the way, just not hyper-dispensationalism. I hope you understand the difference. The Bible does not record Jesus in his, in, in his incarnation as using the word grace. Does this mean we ought to suppose the creator of the universe doesn't understand grace? As the Spirit's been teaching us, we ought never hang our hats on word studies in the Bible. Are we to suppose that his precious ministry wasn't gracious? Is this what we're supposed to understand? Because he never used the word? Some people make the mistake of saying stupid things, like Paul was the, quote, teacher of grace, and Jesus taught something else. That type of, that is, let me put it this way, that is misdirection from the pit of hell. And that's the type of misdirection that Satan infects the churches with. To so see, Jesus Christ never even talked about grace. So you just hang your hat on the forensic arguments of Paul. You know, like in Romans and Ephesians, for starters. You just hang your hat on the forensic, the judicial aspects. You know, the justification by faith aspects. And you can dismiss Jesus altogether. Because, see, he never actually talked about grace. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Didn't, didn't we just read scripture that says Jesus Christ is grace and truth? <laughs> what are we talking about then? You know who wrote that, right? Paul. So every time he used grace, guess who he was thinking about? Do you know? He was thinking about Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior, the very person who taught him personally. How do you think Paul knew about grace? Duh! It's incredible. You see, Satan doesn't want you to think that way. 
So this is the type of misdirection that Satan infects the churches with. It seeks to divide Jesus from his own disciples. To create some kind of an artificial fracture or chasm between the teacher and his students. Up here on the board, learning grace. Ask yourselves, who did Jesus' disciples learn grace from, including Paul? <laughs> who do you think? Jesus. To suggest that Jesus somehow didn't teach grace, grace is to suggest that his own disciples invented it on their own. Yet that's what some will have you believe. Why? Because Satan knows that if he can separate Jesus from his disciples, now he's got a divided gospel. It's gotten so bad that some people say, well, that's the gospel of Jesus, and that's the gospel of Paul. Jesus preached the kingdom, and Paul preached grace. Jesus taught the, the, the Jews, and Paul taught the Gentiles. Satan loves it. Meanwhile, the the teacher and the student are scratching their head going, what are you doing? Um, my master taught me grace. I have to fight certain battles because the Gentiles are knuckleheads. They were steeped in Gnosticism. All these tremendous arguments that you see in the likes of Romans, let's say, were the result, were the rebuttal of a very intelligent man, Paul, rebutting individuals who are trying to dismantle the gospel, trying to pervert grace. So you have to ask yourself, who taught his disciples grace? Who, who have the disciples learn about grace from Jesus? Go to John 14, 23. John 14, 23. And then this is what I also love. Not only that, but then he said, I'm going to give you my spirit. Remember that in, elsewhere in Scripture it says, the spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, who shares the same heart as Jesus Christ, who is grace and truth, who would only teach consistently with the one that embodies grace and truth, which means he'll only teach a grace, true grace gospel, not some perversion of it. He's certainly not going to try to hack up Jesus Christ's ministry. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Nope, when you're dead, we're starting over. Is that what they said? Are you kidding me? For real? Who was the, I mean, come on, people. But this is what some will have you think. Oh, he's dead. Don't even listen to that stuff. Uh, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. You have to ask yourself, well, what about all these perverted pastors that are teaching some hack gospel now? They're not keeping his words. How could they be? They've hacked them up. They've divided up grace even while they stake a claim to it. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So even when I'm gone, he's going to remind you of the things that I taught you. So when you go out and teach... And then when you go out and pen Holy Scripture, it's going to reflect my heart. And the Holy Spirit will make sure that that happens. That's why we say the, the Word of God is, in, uh, what is it, First Timothy, I think, is God-breathed. What does that mean? That means God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the Word of God. He's not going to inspire anything in the canon that's not consistent with Jesus' own heart. So even after Jesus was gone, he said, I'm going to send you the helper, God the Holy Spirit, and he's going to bring into remembrance all the things I taught you. 
And if you, and in retrospect, now looking back thousands of years later, if we look at the New Testament after Jesus was gone, and they're just grace, 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 grace. Whose grace are they talking about? Who do they learn grace from? Whose spirit reminds them to fight that battle, to not allow the enemy to sever us from God's grace in any way, shape, or form? Think about those things. You know the answers. It's obvious. Then he says, look, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. One of the downsides of getting grace wrong is that you lose peace. Fracture grace, fracture peace. I personally believe, and I think Scripture abundantly supplies me with this thinking, that a person who thinks they're saved but really isn't, doesn't have peace. They don't have peace. And then they're wondering, bleeding all over the place. Where's God? Why don't I have peace? Why am I such a mess? Why do I need this crutch and that crutch and this crutch and that crutch? Why do I need all these things? Why am I not at peace? My friend, you might not be saved. Because if you think salvation is from hell, we need to have a conversation. You might not even be saved. But I do know from Scripture that if you keep His Word, if you abide in Him that way, you will have peace. Is there a greater grace than possessing the peace Jesus has promised His own? Remember the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is one ball of wax. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things. here on the board. Regarding the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised His Spirit to His own. That is grace. His Spirit teaches and reminds His disciples of Jesus' words. That is grace. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22-23, for example, includes peace. Verse 27 we just read. That is grace. So you see, the Spirit and Jesus share the same objectives. Who inspired the New Testament? The Spirit. Whose spirit is it? Jesus's. Who has the same heart as Jesus? His spirit. <laughs> Do you think he's going to inspire some other kind of grace? Some other kind of gospel? So that, so that the, the, the church can be divided? So the point is, just because Jesus never actually used the word grace in the Bible... And I keep saying, in the Bible. There's no way he didn't use grace in speech at some point in his life. But as far as it's recorded, we don't see it. Just because Jesus never actually used the word grace in the Bible, that doesn't mean in any sense of the word that he somehow didn't teach it. So the Spirit wants to quickly dispel any notions whatsoever that he... Jesus Christ somehow didn't teach grace. Actually, it's most accurate to consider Jesus this way regarding grace up here on the board. If you want to talk about the man who embodied grace and truth, the way you know Paul wrote it up here on the board, true grace. Jesus didn't just teach grace. He embodied it. Do, I, um, do you have to actually say to someone the word grace for you to understand what grace is? Do we walk around going, hey, that's grace. Hey, that's grace. Do we have to say that or we go in our hearts? What a gracious thing to see. And then you have to ask yourself, well, who the heck is saying, oh, that's grace. I'm grace-oriented. I'm grace-oriented. I'm grace-oriented. Chorus. Usually the, you know, the trumpets, the ones in the corner, those people, they're the same people who are saying, thank God, thanks, Lord, I'm not like him. The one begging for grace. 
Jesus didn't just teach grace, he embodied it. He is the representative work of grace in the flesh. Think about that. He is our prototype end goal concerning our own maturity towards grace. John 1.14, Romans 8.29. Go there, go to Romans 8.29, part A. Again, Jesus didn't just teach grace, he embodied it. He is the representative work of grace in the flesh. He is our, our prototype, end goal, concerning our own maturity towards grace. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Go to John 1.14. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. He didn't have to say the word grace. He was full of grace. In the very embodiment of truth. Remember, He is the Word of God. Look at, yeah, it says the Word became flesh, right? He was the very embodiment of grace in the flesh. The Word became flesh. Again, the point of the board, Jesus didn't just teach grace. He embodied it. He is the representative work of grace in the flesh. He is our prototype and goal concerning our own maturity towards grace. So you see what the Spirit's trying to do here. He's saying, don't you dare even for one iota, one moment, think that Jesus Christ did not teach grace. Every disciple of his was taught by him, his apostles, let's keep it narrower, his apostles were taught directly by him, and then they went out and taught grace, including Paul. All right. Now's a good time for you all to begin synthesizing what the Spirit's trying to convey here already. Let me assist you. <clears throat> First, to say that Jesus somehow didn't teach or preach or live grace is absolute blasphemy. It's absolute blasphemy. Like I said, it's gotten so bad in so-called Christianity that there are whole religions that say that you have to work a little bit for salvation, and that's what Jesus taught. That when he said, you know, you must pick up your cross, and you must deny self, and you must hate Father, well, those are all works that end in salvation. That is ridiculousness. That's the kind of misdirection that Satan has used to pervert the gospel. Jesus never, ever taught works for salvation. He taught grace. But see, if you're trying to defend a perverted gospel, whenever the true gospel comes around, you need some kind of weapon against it. Oh, that's works, that's works, that's works. He cannot, you can't, no, how are you going to accept him as Lord? That's works. You, my friend, are lost. You, my friend, are not reading the same, God, the same Bible I'm reading. Let me assist you again. First, to say Jesus somehow didn't teach or preach or live grace is absolute blasphemy. One way to consider what he actually did for his disciples can be achieved through a little analogy. Let me see if I can help drive this home. On grace. This has to do with grace. <clears throat> Two fathers each have a son that desires to follow in their father's footsteps. Both fathers are carpenters and they build houses for a living. Both of these men understand that they won't be around forever. 
So when their sons get old enough, they know they must teach them their trade. Now, for the sake of this illustration, suppose the time between the start of training and their own deaths is about three, is about three years. <clears throat> the first father spends his last days teaching his son how to build houses by showing him blueprints, pictures, and teaching him procedures that must be taken with the towns for approval, etc. The second father spends the majority of his time taking his son out on the road with him and giving him a hammer and nails to help out with. As a final project, this father plays consultant even on his, son, his son's last project, which is building his own house, to the point where the roles are almost reversed, where the father serves the son before he dies. The primary difference between the first and second scenarios is that the first son, while educated, has never seen or performed any house building. It's not that he won't eventually be able to build a home, but one has to consider which type of learning bears the greatest fruit. So on the flip side, the second son has understood his father's craft through first-hand experience. He's not only seen his father, his teacher, go about his business, but his father has also tutored him along the way as he engaged in the craft directly. And while this second son may not understand every last bit of why, say, a roof joist size is a function of roof pitch, he can always go back to his own physical house and contemplate things for real. Jesus is like the second father here, and his disciples like the second son. He had three years of ministry. He had three years to either sit in caves and teach his disciples about grace or take his disciples out on the road with him. We know from the biblical account that Jesus, the perfect master, chose to teach his disciples through experience. There's no substitute for experience. And then as he taught in his parable of the ten miners, he left them all behind to continue his good work. Keep building houses, you know, like I showed you. Go to Luke 19.12. Luke 19.12. You don't think Jesus understood grace? Can't believe we're out of time. Luke 19.12. So he said, this is Jesus, of course, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Of course, that's him. He said, I'm going to leave. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas. In other words, he gave them grace and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. You see that problem? I'm just saying. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mind has made ten miners more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. And so goes the parable. Again, Jesus is like the second father in our little analogy. He teaches his sons through first-hand experience, guiding them along the way, encouraging and even disciplining them. And then he sets them free. In fact, he even uses several parables that use house building as the para. Remember I taught you about parabola. Para means close, or close beside or with. And then bola means to cast. So he actually used house building as the para part of a parable. Why? Because it makes sense. You don't learn to build a house with paper. 
there's a reason why the trades all have like journeyman aspects to them. It's because they require on-the-job training. You don't say, hey, I read this book right here. Let me build you a multi-million dollar house and let's just hope it works out for the best. <laughs> if I don't kill myself. Well, there's a reason why Jesus used house building as an analogy. There's a real reason for it. Because, look, grace is something that we learn even through experience. And Jesus Christ taught his own disciples that way. The fact is that Jesus liked the builder's analogy, which is why his spirit had me teach you this way this evening. Here's another perfect example. We've got a minute. Go quickly. Go to Luke 14, 28. Luke 14, 28. Here's another perfect example of where he uses a builder's analogy. Luke 14, 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What is that all about? That's about salvation. Have you counted the cost? Do you truly understand? Hey, disciples of mine, make sure when you go make other disciples that you're honest with them. That there's a truth to what you're going to tell them. It's not a little goodies bag. There's actually a calculation that occurs by you. You have to make a decision. God has to see a humble heart, a person that is willing, not able, but with God all things are possible. How can anybody be saved? With God all things are possible. God gives grace to who? The humble. So if you're willing, God will make you able. If you're willing, He will save you from the dominion of sin that you were born in and deliver you to the dominion of righteousness where the Lord is Savior. And He's looking for a humble heart that says, I get it and I want it. I can't do it. I know there's no way I can do this on my own, Father. But I want this thing. I want the good news. I realize that I'm a depraved, deprived individual born in sin. And the only way I can ever be righteous, the law said it, and they might not even be there yet, but for the more educated, prove that it can't be done. The only way you make it possible, by grace, not just to pluck me from hell, to literally save me from sin. That I want. If that's your son, if that's why he went to the cross, I want that. I want him. I want Messiah. I want Lord and Savior. I want him. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ and his disciples just like this. There was no goofing around. Satan will attack grace, I believe this, until the end of his days. He's going to keep on attacking grace, which is why if you, look at the, if you look at the New Testament, that's all it really is. Most of it, if the gospel's really that simple, which it is, then when you read the New Testament, you, what you see are men like me Shepherds' hearts. Seeing the wolves circling the pack. I'm serious. This is my life. This is my life. I wish I could be like, uh, you know, pearly white with the curly hair. <laughs> Jesus loves you. And make $500 million a year. I don't wish that, but you know what I'm saying, right? Jesus loves you so much. This is not the life of a shepherd. These wolves are everywhere. That's what you see in the New Testament. Shepherds defending the flock against the wolves. The only reason the arguments are complicated at all, you ready, is because the, the, the intricacies, the complexity was introduced from without. And the people within started buying it. And Paul was like me saying, 
oh man, you mean I gotta actually, I gotta go down this complicated road to like untangle these false doctrines? Yep. You have to loose them from the lies that have infiltrated the church, a lot of which we have reiterated this evening. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.